As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that just bought 49 acres worth of land off the Las Vegas Strip for a billion dollars. Jordan, congratulations to us. Yeah, thank you guys for supporting us so much uh, so that we could purchase all this land for podcasting use. That's us. Hello, Jay. Good morning. It is Wednesday. And I got to say, we had a lot of quality ball last night. We were both at different ball games. I was at Reds Rangers and left right before the Reds comeback. You were at Mariners Phillies uh, watching Marco Gonzalez uh, be an absolute dog. I stayed up late to watch Blake Sable be a legend in San Francisco. There's a lot to get to, but we're going to push that to Friday because as we alluded to on, on last Friday's episode, we wanted to devote an entire episode to the A's uh, in all likelihood moving to Las Vegas. And so we have two special guests coming up uh, later on to join us to talk about that. We're going to talk to Mark Carrig, uh, editor at The Athletic, who has very, very uh, strong Bay Area roots and recently uh, East Bay roots. We should, we should, of course, clarify. He wrote about uh, what this move has made him, made him feel uh, very recently. Love that conversation with Mark. You'll hear that. And then we're going to talk to Oakland A's all-star Grant Balfour about pitching for the A's and what that was like and his connection with the fan base. So you'll hear another Australian, not just producer Chris, on later on in the show. Uh, but before we get to our special guests, I know, Jake, we wanted to do a little bit of a history lesson, at least to the best of our ability. We're not going to get too into the weeds, but it feels like to set up these conversations that we had with Mark and Grant, it'd be best to kind of review some of the facts of how we got here and, and where we are right now. Exactly right. What are the events that have precipitated the current Oakland A's situation and where is this story going? But I first want to talk about like, why are we doing a whole show on this, right? And the more that I thought about it, I came to the conclusion of this does not happen a lot. Relocation, expansion, teams moving, leaving. It's very rare. We have not had anything like this since 2004 when we were kids growing up in D.C., and we were excited to have the Nationals showing up in 2005. So we, you know, took that in from a very different perspective. But there's so much conjecture and so much talk about teams moving and ballpark development plans and, you know, meetings with city councils that when it actually happens, when we have real news, it's really worth diving into because it has a chance to alter the landscape of Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's let's dial the clock back. Okay, let's go back to the beginning when the A's first showed up in Oakland and how did they get here? So the A's franchise actually begins in Philadelphia. They're there from 1901 to 1954. We are going to just blow right past that. Okay. They had We're some good gonna, teams. They had some good they had teams. Some good Won teams. five World Series. 
Uh, had some good players. Eddie Collins had a couple solid seasons. There we go. That's the Philadelphia A's. <laughs> they run out of money and they leave. They go to Kansas City, whatever. Kansas City owner is kind of a schmuck. He dies. And who buys the team? But a gentleman by the name of Charlie Finley, a name that maybe you know because he was the owner of the Oakland A's when they were incredible in the early 1970s. So he buys the team in 1960 and and he says, quote, my intentions are to keep the A's permanently in Kansas City and build a winning ball club. I have no intention of ever moving the fan base, ever moving the franchise. Does that sound uh, familiar at all, Jordan? Uh, Yeah, very, very normal and very believable stuff. Uh, and also, so what? So that quote was followed up by the following uh, loss totals over the next seven seasons. 190, 89, 105, 103, 86, 99. That was uh, the rest of the time in Kansas City. So the whole time they're there in Kansas City, he's trying to get him to move. Like, he's like, ah, this is not for me. I do not like the Midwest. I am bouncing. In 1964, he signs an agreement to move the athletics to Louisville, Kentucky. Of all places, something I did not know. The other American League owners, all nine of them, they all vote against it. Six weeks later, six weeks later, he tries again to move the team to Oakland. Again, they all vote it down. Okay, so he's just like, get me out of Kansas City, anywhere but here. Which is, you know, Kansas City is a nice town. But what happens is, as he's publicly flirting with all these other towns, no, no one in Kansas City is showing up to the ballpark. Again, sound familiar? October 1967, after some finagling, He eventually gets the other owners to allow him to move the team to Oakland for the 1968 season, where the uh, Oakland Coliseum is eventually, I believe, pre-built, as Mark Craig uh, told us, for the Oakland A's. And that begins the A's tenure in Oakland. And really, you know, a very brief overview. They're awesome in the 70s, like those iconic Charlie Finley teams, even though the fans didn't always show up, they were really good. They're awesome again in the late 80s and early 90s with like Canseco, McGuire, Ricky Henderson. That batch of players, bad in the in the mid to late 90s a little bit. Moneyball happens. There's a movie about it. Brad Pitt, always hot. Then there are the rise and falls in the uh, David Forst, Billy Bean era. And that has essentially brought us to today. Did I miss anything? Miss a lot of stuff. But for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> I think you <laughs> summed up uh, quite well. And this is why the reason we want to kind of zoom ahead in this story is because the one key detail, which we're going to get into a little bit with Mark regarding the Coliseum and how we got to this point with the news of the A's declaring their intention to move to Vegas, is involved with the ballpark and the concept of staying in Oakland and what it would have looked like were they to figure out a stadium in Oakland. And if you've been very loosely following this story or you've seen headlines about it, you've probably seen two words associated with it, Howard Terminal. So Jake, can you explain to me a little bit about Howard Terminal and why that is a, those are two very relevant words in this story. I went to high school with him, Howie Terminal. Do you remember him? Howie Terminal, man. He was funny. He was a funny guy. Mr. Terminal. Uh, No, Howard Terminal. What is the Howard Terminal and the Howard Terminal Project? The Howard Terminal is a a piece of land relatively close to downtown Oakland. By my rough Google mappage, it's a 20-ish minute walk to the courtyard downtown. Uh, I mean like the courtyard hotel because that's how you know you're in a downtown area as I sit in a courtyard recording this very podcast. No free ads. Uh, The... Plot of land is owned by the Port of Oakland, but has not been used for shipping port-related shit 
since 2013. So it has not been an active, like, bringing in the goods port for a number of years. Yeah. If you look it up, you know, on Google Maps, you just see this giant plot of shipping containers and just a huge plot of land right on the water that is pretty close to downtown, which you can imagine, even if you knew nothing about it, be like, seems like they could probably build something cool and uh, worth a lot of money there. That land seems valuable. It looks like the end of the final montage from season two of The Wire is what it looks like. All right. For people who this like also, me, who have, also underrated, is is Howard Terminal underrated? Is Howard Terminal underrated? Uh, it seems to have been overrated, and we'll get to that. Okay, so this site gets identified for a potential future stadium, and in 2018, we get some incredible, sexy renderings of a ballpark. And I remember this because you and I were working at MLB.com at the time. We were in the office; these came out. There was like a electric gondola yes, that was going like, to like deliver. Say, I remember the gondola. I remember the gondola. Yeah. There was a gondola. There was like a, a elevated Babylon garden. And like it was on the ballpark. It opened up to the water. It looked beautiful as these renderings always do. And that gets some real energy behind the stadium. There's a proposed redevelopment project outside the yard itself because everyone is just trying to replicate what the Braves built with the battery in Atlanta because that is where the real money is. Similar situation in D.C., with all that land around Nationals Park that the learners, that ownership group, they all own. That's where the big money is. It's actually beyond the stadium. And that will probably be the thing that eventually tanks this A's project. Okay, so 2018 renderings come out. 2019, you have regular progress, right? You have environmental impact research reports. You're doing like city council meetings. You're talking to local constituents. You're getting the unions behind it. All the palms that need to be greased you know, all, I guess not palms greased, but the wheels greased in order to get this thing done. It's just normal discussions. Now, the sense that I get is that it takes longer to build a stadium in California than it does in other places. And that is probably a good thing, if that makes I would, sense. I would think so. Yeah. Stadiums because... do not just pop out of the earth. Okay. These are big projects that have the potential to reshape the way communities operate and the environment and the land around them. And, it, you know, it makes sense to talk to the people who live in the place before you build the big ass thing next door. Yeah. On top of, you know, environmental impacts and you're building near the water and you're doing all these things that you cannot just sprout one up overnight and say, ta-da, here's a stadium. And so uh, taking time to understand what it would mean to have a stadium, let alone how all of it is being paid for, which is, of course, top of mind for everybody involved, uh, makes plenty of sense. So it's taking some time. And then what happens? What was it? 2020? I can't remember. What was going on then? Coronavirus. Oh, yes. Okay. I remember. It was quite novel at the time. Not as novel now. Very novel then. And that through that changed some plans, right? It wasn't just that you had to reschedule your birthday party. Yeah, there was a lot else that got a little bit uh, thrown a, into whack, out of whack, I should say, by this whole global pandemic. Yeah, I mean the whole A's. That, that's what people will say when they look back on the panorama. Mm-hmm. That it really spiraled the A's ballpark redevelopment program, and, and it did. Like things you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it delays everything. And so nothing really happens in 2020. And then in 2021, like they're still talking to the people in the city council and Manfred kind of taps his watch and says to the A's, "Ah, let's get a move on here. Hey, what do you say now? And that 
makes Dave Caval, who we've yet to introduce, who is the team president of the A's and kind of the attack dog for team owner uh, John Fisher, Caval and the face of this project, Caval says that it is Howard Terminal or bust. And that puts all of the eggs into one basket. And around the same time, the organization, the franchise starts poking around Las Vegas. They start making trips out there. They start doing interviews with the local paper. Eventually, they hire 11 lobbyists to uh, talk to the local government out there, including Caval himself, who registers as a lobbyist in the state of Nevada. So I found this ridiculous quote that Caval had in the local paper in Vegas when he was asked, this is, in, I believe, in 2021, about a potential Vegas stadium. And I'm going to read this in a Trump voice because that's how this comes across. My previous experience with PayPal Park, he was the president of the San Jose Earthquakes, okay? Very cool. We built the largest bar in North America, almost 345 feet of linear space. It's the place to be seen in San Jose. The place to be seen in San Jose. He says, I also have the Guinness record for world's largest groundbreaking. We had 7,000 people with blue shovels. Normally, when you have a groundbreaking, it's with gold shovels for ritzy people. Eventually... Everyone got to take the shovel home, and now they're gardening every year. They're thinking of the earthquakes. This is a quote of a man detached from reality, is how this comes across to me. And I think it invalidates basically anything that Caval says, like moving forward about the team, about Vegas, and about Oakland. I'm honestly just like now grappling with the fact that they have a team name called the Earthquakes. In San Jose, uh, which I knew was a thing, but like that's another main takeaway, especially with, with the quote, everyone, everyone is thinking about the earthquakes. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like amazing. So, yeah, like this is just weird stuff. Like it's just like weird sports, rich man jargon lingo. Um, and so he, they start flirting with Vegas. February of 2022. The good news for Oakland, the environmental impact report for this Howard Terminal site gets approved by the Oakland City Council, okay? And that means that they are basically full go environmentally to build the new stadium. And there's a quote from the former mayor who says, tonight's action is more than a milestone. It's a giant leap forward in our shared mission to create a regional destination that gives back to our waterfront and to the public, connects a new vibrant neighborhood to our downtown, and provides tens of thousands of good union jobs for our residents. And it does it all while keeping our beloved A's rooted in Oakland. That was said by former Mayor Libby Schaff. So that's a big deal, right? Like that sounds like there's going to be a stadium built and this team is going to stay for a long time. And that the, the city government is like focused on this. Now, Libby Schaff, her term limits ran out at the end of 2022. And so she's no longer the mayor. And that is pretty relevant. Later that year in 2022, the San Francisco Bay Conservation Commission votes to remove port priority use from the site. Essentially saying like, this here area is not a port. Like it's just a land with port stuff on it and is no longer considered a port. And that's really important. So for all of 2022, there seems to be momentum. There seems to be positive things going on. But then in October, the team in the city failed to reach a development agreement about the surrounding area. Basically, the A's agree to fund the stadium itself and the surrounding like real estate but want the city to pay for a lot of the infrastructure around the project. And that is really important because infrastructure is very expensive. And even more notably, infrastructure is really hard to budget 
because there are overruns and there are delays and it costs more than you maybe eventually or more than you predict it will at the beginning of a project. And so that is where the discord really begins and they miss a deadline to come to this agreement and that is where the talks with Vegas really start picking up. The A's in the city apply for like a big infrastructure grant, $182 million from the Department of Transportation. The Department of Transportation is like, no, this is not a good use of money. We're not going to give you this money. And it just looks pretty bad. But as recently as April 3rd, this is this month, the city wins a lawsuit against a group of people that challenged the environmental impact report of the stadium, right? So they had the environmental impact report last year. People who were against the stadium said this report was BS. They sue the city. The city wins. And the new mayor, Sheng Tao, says that winning this suit is one step closer to reaching our goals. So that is as recently as like three weeks ago, the mayor of Oakland is talking about keeping the team there and is clearly doing everything they can to keep the team in town. So that is the buildup to a week ago when the Oakland A's announced that they had purchased land off the Las Vegas Strip for about a billion dollars with the intent of eventually building a stadium on that site and moving the franchise to Nevada by the beginning of 2027. And that's why uh, if you saw some of the clips of Mayor Shang Tao talking last week about how, quote unquote, blindsided uh, she was by the A's basically saying in the middle or at least at a pretty crucial part of these negotiations where it seemed like there was momentum towards getting this deal at Howard Terminal approved and everything kind of lining up. They had cleared all these obstacles that she says, this is how we find out that they're actually going to Vegas. That's their priority. They're using us as leverage X, Y, Z. Now, it's not like they didn't know they were negotiating with Vegas. That was hardly a secret as you just laid out, right? But at the same time, with the progress that seemed to have been being made in Oakland, that is why this is <laughs> looked as bad as it has. Now, most interestingly, and this is a very important point as we sit here today on Wednesday morning on April 26th, is that everything with Vegas is probably more likely to get done. There's a reason they, they made that play. They feel more confident in the Vegas legislators to help them pay for what they want to pay for in Vegas with the new stadium and having a better deal, as Mark will allude to later. At the same time, that is far from done. That is far from complete. There are a lot of hurdles that are going to have to happen there. And now leaves the A's in a place where I'm honestly not exactly sure what the obvious next step is, other than they better hope that Nevada legislators are willing to, to let them you know, push through what presumably they had roughly agreed upon uh, more easily than what had ended up happening with the Oakland government. So it is an ugly, ugly situation. Most importantly, it is impacting a lot of people who the team means a lot to, of course, as you're going to hear from one of them here shortly. But that is roughly where we are at now. It is, of course, a fluid story. Uh, and we will certainly be spending more time in future episodes talking about the situation. But it is far from over. We are continuing to get quotes from all people involved and uh, there's been a lot of tremendous reporting being done by this. I encourage especially check out the work of Casey Pratt of ABC7 in Oakland. He's been doing tremendous work uh, covering this story. Uh, but yeah, anything else we want to we want to kind of lay out before we, we we bring in our special guests? Well, I really want to harp on one thing I mentioned, which was the 
failure to reach an agreement in October of 2022 on the development around the site, because that former mayor, Libby Schaff, was such an advocate for the team and for the franchise and for keeping the team there. She was very committed to that. But what happened in my reading of it is that the team wanted more money than they were getting and so didn't come to an agreement during that time. And then when the mayorship changed at the beginning of 2023, they had someone in office who wasn't as supportive or at least wasn't as active and as um, involved with the, keeping the A's in Oakland that they had to like reestablish all of these relationships. They had built this relationship up with Libby Schaff and with members of the city council. And then when the government changed and there were a couple new city council members and a new mayor, they were essentially starting from scratch and members of the organization have essentially admitted this, that they needed to get the deal done in 22. And when they didn't get the deal done in 22, it really sped that timeline up because they needed to get this all done by twenty, the end of 2024 when the stadium lease at the Coliseum is up and when MLB said if they don't get it figured out by the end of 2024, I believe, that they won't get revenue sharing money anymore. And that that is why this feels so truncated and so rushed and why the organization can't keep playing the same games on the hamster wheel that they've done for the last decade. Because there was a deadline imposed by Major League Baseball onto them. And that is the important uh, business and governmental context behind this story. But if you want to have it simplified and just understand what it means to someone who has had the A's be an important part of their life uh, since the very beginning, we think you will definitely enjoy this conversation that we have with Mark Craig of The Athletic. So we'll send it to that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back uh, with Mark to talk about that. Uh, then we will take another break, return with Mr. Balfour, and then we will wrap it up at the end with some news. Hey, everybody. I'm James Hinchcliffe. And I'm Alexander Rossi, and we're the hosts of Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. The racing season is in full swing, and we're breaking down all the exciting action on and off the track from the world of IndyCar, NASCAR, Formula One, and more. And by more, we mean that sometimes we just talk about whatever the hell we want, like time travel, Canadian ships, or the many reasons not to go to Death Valley. Either way, join us. Every week, we'll be here having fun. Fun's a relative term, but that's not the point. Download Off Track with Hinch and Rossi on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. We are very excited to be joined by one of our old friends. He was on the OG Barbacast, and now he joins us here today. It is Mark Craig of The Athletic. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Mark, I don't listen to a lot of baseball podcasts, even though I do one. I listen to yours pretty religiously. So thank you for the free content you have provided us, <laughs> other free content makers. <laughs> sure. I'm glad that you're a roundtable head. That makes me uh, happy to hear. Andy uh, would yeah. would be pleased by that too. Don't tell Andy. <laughs> don't, don't let it. Don't let Andy get too excited about that. Uh, Mark, the last time we had you on a version of the Barbacast, it was January 2016, and we were talking about the Mets. We are not going to talk about the Mets uh, on this here podcast because we wanted to bring you on to to join us for our, our A's centric 
uh, edition of this podcast because you wrote something that that I think what you spoke for a lot of people you know who grew up in in the Bay Area in the East Bay Area in particular uh, with the news of the A's uh, all in all likelihood moving to Las Vegas at some point in the next half decade. So let's begin with the very simple. Uh, you know, spot, which if you haven't read Mark's piece from last week at The Athletic, you got a little bit of hint of that. But what is your first memory of of the Oakland A's? So the first thing I remember about the Oakland A's, I guess the first time I realized that they were in existence, it must have been, I don't know, near the end of the 87 season or something like that. And there was a game on and Reggie Jackson and Jose Canseco were on the same team. It was... uh Reggie's last year in the major leagues. And of course they make this big deal of the changing of the guard. So I just remember seeing that. And then, you know, they're wearing green and gold. It's like cool colors. Like I just started kind of paying attention to baseball. So I stop and I see it. And I'm just like, that's interesting. Um, And then, you know, not too long after that, I had an older cousin who I really looked up to. He was like a big brother to me. Um, was in the Navy, like a lot of Filipino dudes are, all right? like, And his time in the Navy takes him to Norfolk, Virginia. And there are two things that he introduced me to in that time that, you know, stick with me. One is Ric Flair and the NWA and like kind of that non-WWF wrestling at the time, which was a revelation to me. And the other one was like a love for baseball because he really, really loved baseball and one of the ways that he stayed connected to home was paying attention to the Oakland A's, right? So when he'd be back, when he was actually out of the military, like, you know, like we were just all about baseball. Whenever I was over there, we're watching baseball, we're talking baseball. I was learning baseball. Um, you know, like he was, like I said, older than I was, but I remember throwing the gear on, getting the mitt and like catching for him, thinking I'm Terry Steinbach because we're just like, <laughs> obsessed with baseball so those are my first memories of it was sort of seeing it on tv and then yeah my cousin was super into it made me super into it and and off we go you mentioned this a little bit in your piece but the psyche of the east bay sports fan and how that sense of place and connection to that franchise is really meaningful and really important for you and for so many other people growing up in the east bay now when jordan introduced you and introduce this concept, he said the Bay. And I would imagine that you would probably, as a, a somewhat sticklery, say the East Bay. Can <laughs> you explain to two East Coasters the distinction culturally between San Francisco and the East Bay and how that has kind of manifested itself in sports fandom, both when there were three teams and now that there are one and maybe zero teams? Yeah. So, San Francisco obviously is a world-class city. It's every, it's known the world over. It's a gorgeous place. Um, the East Bay is more blue-collar, all right? I'll tell you, the town I grew up in, I'll give you an example, all right? You could go and it's like one town's like suburb, bedroom, community, and you would drive like three minutes and you were literally driving through an oil refinery that had been there for 100 years. All right. And you drive another 10 minutes and it's houses and schools and then another five minutes, another oil refinery. All right. It's a blue collar place. Okay. And it's not San Francisco. So I think it, it kind of creates an odd dynamic where 
you know, it's still a beautiful area and it's still like the Bay Area as a whole is like, you know, it's a really cool, interesting, diverse place. But for me, like the East Bay was always sort of different. Um, you know, there it's there are parts of it that are when I say blue collar, all right, like also think of like what happens when those jobs go away. All right. I think you're kind of taught a little bit of a chip there. So I think we all know, you know, when the Raiders played in Oakland, it was part of the brand, right? The fact that there were renegades and outlaws, they wore black when nobody wore black, right? It's funny now, you hear like some random Division Three school say, you know, so-and-so nation, and it's ridiculous. It's Raider Nation, okay? That's where it began, all right? So, you know, from that, like you, you have this identity of it was always a second-class citizen, and no one's telling you that explicitly, but you know it. All right. And so as an A's fan growing up, you always knew if you went to school, you were out number two to one. All right. Like you knew that there was always going to be more Giants fans, despite the fact that their stadium sucked. They were way more boring. And for a lot of that time, they just weren't very good at baseball. All right. Like for a lot of it, like they were just like straight non-competitive and like, you know, they had their moments. But for the most part, I just remember thinking objectively as a kid. Why would anyone watch the Giants when you could watch the A's? Right? Like, so I think there's always been, as far as like the East Bay goes, it's a blue collar, more of a blue collar mentality. Obviously, that has changed now. The area is like, you know, like everywhere else, right? Nothing stays the same. But I still think there's an element of that chip. And I think that's what you saw a little bit last week, where certainly that was my reaction to it you know i've been i haven't lived in the bay area in 20 years now which is crazy to say out loud Um, but born and raised all right still i've got a massive family they're all still there i'm the only one who left all right um and you guys like that morning because like i'm an editor at the athletic now right so i didn't even find out on social media i opened my phone and i as i do every morning i just hey what's the overnight news what did we do and i see that evan has written this story and like is this at 635, 640 in the morning? And I can't even believe what I'm reading. Like, I can't. I'm like, is this for real right now? Like, what? Like, I, I do. I literally do that thing with my eyes and I read it again. I'm like, no way. Right. And so I can't even process it. You're now all of a sudden, like, family, old friends reaching out. We're all just like in shock. And, you know, I hate to say it this way because. You know, unfortunately, I have gotten this call where somebody, we've lost somebody and you're going to find out. It wasn't that far off from that. And you guys, like, I met you guys when, you know, you're students, you were, you hadn't been covering the sport, right? You were outsiders to it. Later on, as you guys establish yourselves, obviously, and I want to speak for you, but for me, like the relationship with the game changes a little bit, right? It has to, because we're making our living chronicling this. And I've been doing it longer than you guys, right? And like, I thought truly like that was all gone, okay? Like, obviously, as an A's fan growing up, it's what got me into this. But, you know, my love for this goes beyond that, right? Like, I love storytelling. I love the sport. Like, I love the history of it. I love the way that we all come together over all of those shared things that you kind of know about with baseball. So I thought a part of me, like, that wasn't going to happen anymore, that I couldn't feel sadness like that. And here I was, you know, whatever morning that was, Wednesday morning or Thursday morning, and I was no different than my brother, 
who was just like in mourning over it and like oh man this killed me later on like you know like i said i got a huge family got all these cousins we all grew up near each other we used to all go to games together and they're sending pictures of their kids and their a's stuff we're all sharing it's just like unbelievable like it's hard to believe that that's gone now that's going to be gone so i think that's another thing with rooting for the a's in particular you know you're always outnumbered and it does not matter right and i think that's an east bay thing too it's really interesting to hear you talk about the way that your relationship with this has changed. And like, at least for us, like to me, for some extent, like my Orioles fandom has lessened because you learn to pull for people that are kind to you and people that you think are kind people. And and you see that all of these franchises are relatively interchangeable and that the laundry is different, but they're all just businesses and they're all teams trying to win. But what's interesting to hear you talk about is like when a franchise announces that it's moving like that is the place that is losing something, not necessarily like the players on the field. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think it's uh, like you, right? Like you talked about how these are businesses. I know that, right? And even in the column, I'm not sitting here going, they should stay. I didn't write that. I know that this is done. And if it's not going to be Las Vegas in, in 2027, it's going to be somewhere else, most likely, right? For a lot of different reasons, okay? Places change, the political leaders have changed. Like, I mean, the A's came to Oakland at a time where places would build ballparks without even knowing if they'd have a team. Like, imagine trying to pull that move there today, right? So, like, it's just a different time, different place. In a lot of ways, they shouldn't have been there to begin with. And, like, as a fan, as I grew up, I knew that. Especially when I started covering baseball, then I really knew that, right? Like this felt like borrowed time. So, it, but yeah, like I, I think, yeah, the relationship with the game definitely changes, right? And it's sort of, it has to happen that way, uh, which is why I was like, I mean, I surprised myself a little bit. And and honestly, you know, we were joking about Andy McCullough before we were on, you know, Andy's like one of my closest friends and I'm texting him in shock. And he's like, dude, you should write something. And I'm like, you're crazy, dude. I'm not, because I haven't been writing frequently in now probably two years, right? And like, he kind of talks me into it. And my thing with him was like, all right, I'll do it. But you have to promise me you will read it first. Because like, and then you have to promise me you will tell me that if it's crap, no one will ever hear of this. Like, it, it'll just like, you know, like it was between us and that is that. So it took 45 minutes, just rage writing, right? Phone's still blowing up with people from home, just like in shock. I sent it to Andy and he's like, tweak that, send it. Like what? Like, yeah, just that's it. That's exactly what needed to be said. So again, even in that regard, right? I felt all that stuff, Jake, and wasn't even sure that I would write that piece that day. Right. So again, part of it was like, hey, you know, I don't know. I think I did a pretty good job of being objective. No one knew that. In fact, an hour after that column published, I got a text from someone, you know, an executive type person in baseball that I've known for years, like probably like one of the first people I got to know in baseball. Right. So I've known this guy 15 years. And he goes, Mark, I had no idea. That, that that those were your guys like that. Like, I had no idea. And I was like, okay, well, that's good because you shouldn't have had any idea, right? Like, that's part of the bargain of covering this is that you 
you take all your Oriole fandom or whatever A's fan, you put it in a box and know that like it's never going to be like that again. At least I thought that, right? That it's never going to be like that again until they told me, until I read, they're going to leave. Then it was just like, I might as well have been 13 again, which was wild, guys. Like I did not expect that. I still am surprised that I reacted that way, to be honest with you. But to your point, like you were able to both lay it out in a very objective and realistic manner and communicate how much it hurts. And I think that this story, as you just acknowledged before, I think there are a lot of fans who understandably say like, no, like there's no excuse for ever taking a team away from some place that means so much to all these people. But as you acknowledge in the story, and as if anyone that follows this or stories similar, both in baseball and in other sports, like this is a business and they are always going to go uh, search for another deal. I want to kind of go back to the uh, references to the chip on the shoulder, the 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 blue collar nature of the of Oakland and Oakland sports, whatever, and call Col- the Coliseum in particular, because that is such a big part of this story. And I sense that at some point over the last two decades, it transitioned from yeah, this is our home. It's not as sparkly and nice as all your other cool fancy stadiums, but we love it. And now it is, as far as we can tell, a huge reason why they are leaving. So, can you talk a little bit about that? transition and when you feel like that happened, if that is a fair characterization. Easy. Oakland Raiders coming back. I think there's a before and after with Mount Davis and the Coliseum. And it's a pretty clear defining line. And I think it's more than that. It was also Mark, can the you, strike. Yeah. Can you can you explain what Mount Davis is to people listening who yeah, maybe don't okay. know? Okay. So quickly before the when the Raiders played in Oakland the first time, they shared the ballpark with the A's. And that entire outfield, and I'm looking at a Bash Brothers poster right now, that entire outfield was open. It was eucalyptus trees and like ice plant. Like you could see the hills on a clear day. All right. Like it was pretty. It actually looked like a lot like Arlington Stadium used to look in Texas. It was just bleachers circling around the outfield, but it wasn't super high. Well, when the Raiders came back from Los Angeles, one of the contingencies, contingencies was they had to build out the ballpark to accommodate them, get them box seats and whatever. So they took that pretty outfield and turned it into like, you know, a modern, at that point, NFL stadium, just kind of piled on top of what had been there. So it created this triple deck concrete monstrosity that you see today that they tarp half of, right? Uh, it looks terrible. Right? It's awful, but that's what happened to the ballpark. So I think a couple things happened. The first is, you know, I'll tell you, this is the one that drives me crazy when I hear they've never gotten good attendance there. And and Rob Manfred said it yesterday. It's never been outstanding, and he's so full of it. Not true, okay? That late 80s, early 90s team were amongst the best draws in baseball. Now, Here's the coincidence. One, it was literally the only time in 50-something years of Oakland athletics history in which the ownership group was not only competent, but spent money on players. And what happened? They won three straight pennants, won a World Series, and were tops in the American League or near it for all of that time. Okay? And and by then, like the stadium was older, but it wasn't falling apart. It wasn't like, you know, screwed up by the Raiders. Now, Couple things happen. Well, I, well, just one second, Mark. I have yeah. the numbers in front of me. Okay. So in 1990, 
the A's finished third league wide uh-huh. in attendance behind the Dodgers, who have a stadium the size of uh, the world, uh-huh. and the Blue Jays, uh-huh. um, who I believe had recently just moved into open the Sky Dome. They just yeah. opened the Sky Dome, right? And they remain kind of in that top crust over 2 million fans for the next four seasons. So from 90 to the strike, uh, the season before the strike in 93. Uh-huh. And after that, it tails off a little bit. Right. So a couple things happen. Walter Haas dies. Okay. The patriarch of the family that saved the team dies. All right. So your golden era of Oakland A's baseball kind of goes with him. Then the player's strike hits. Right. So those are two massive, you know, earth shattering things. And then the third thing is the Raiders coming back and then Mount Davis being built. And that was it. After that, like, obviously the A's had success, right? Because the Moneyball era teams, you know, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they made the playoffs a lot. And it, up until two years ago, they had made consecutive playoff runs. Like, this is a team that has had success. They've done it, obviously, by becoming good at not spending money and finding inefficiencies. All that stuff's all well-documented. But it was never quite the same because even those teams didn't draw. And so what I think I resent is, all right, that's true. The the attendances haven't been outstanding, but it's like this team was run well for maybe 15 years of the 55. You know, because they never draw a million. They never drew a million fans in 72, 73, or 74. But that's what happens when your owner, in this case, Charlie Finley, is at war with the fans. All right. He was just a kind of this quirky sort of, you know, like he for as long as he was there, it seemed like he was trying to move him. All right. And so he was acting accordingly. And that's why, like, you know, I saw Howie Rose, the Mets broadcaster, was like, no one went to see those teams. I don't understand it. It's like, well, when they won't send you season tickets when you've ordered them, which like he would do stuff like that, like throw it in the garbage, like intentionally tank the experience. Right, trying to get out of there. Like, so, you know, like that, you, when you've done that to a fan base for so long, you know, right? Like, and, and we, which is so interesting because now we, we've seen that playbook again. And we're yeah. seeing it again over the last three seasons with the A's without upgrading the Coliseum at all and with purposefully turning the roster into a husk of what it once was into barely a baseball team and then throwing your hands up and saying, why is no one showing up to watch our ball club? That rings pretty hollow. Well, Jake, they also raised ticket prices for the privilege of watching this dreck. And I hate, I, it's so hard because like you guys know this, you've been in clubhouses, major league players bust their asses. They're trying. Okay. Like you can say a lot of things about player performance and outcomes or whatever, but it's few and far between to see guys that do not care and don't play hard. Those guys are trying the best they can. But they've been set up to be bad, all right? And it is horrible because in my – and this is, to me, the thrust of the column. That part wasn't even necessary because if you you have half a brain, you know that the Bay Area is a two-team market. There were questions for that, you know, from the beginning, okay? You, You know that, like, one team has always been dominant over the other as far as attention and all that stuff, right? Because they got there first and and whatever. So – like it wouldn't have been crazy, even you know, without the tanking part of it, for them to be entertaining a move. And the stadium is falling apart. And like, look, the local leadership there, hey, that's that's partly on them too. All right, but what, I just didn't understand the need to like just take it all the way here. 
all right, to basically tell a front office that had been resourceful and figured out a way to compete and make it to, so that they can't, all right, like it, forcing people into trades of good players and then and then you know, it's just brutal. And then like to have the audacity to raise the prices, um, and then and then go oh hell nobody comes that's why we gotta go. It's just like, wow, you know, and 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 there are people. Not surprisingly, on social media, who haven't been paying attention, that will just repeat that line. Well, of course they're moving. No one comes to the games. Like there's no A's fans. Blah blah blah. blah. Okay, all right, okay. Like and 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 we're seeing. I think that that is just like if you're paying attention, you know that like that doesn't even pass basic scrutiny, right? Especially when you watch one Padres game this year, <laughs> and you see you see what investment does to a, a media market that maybe isn't at the top of the charts. Right. And guess what, Jake? Those were the Oakland days. 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. That's what they were. What a great, I didn't think about that, but that's it. That's it. It's, I mean, dude, there's the comp. And like we, and no one's looking at the Padres. Oh, they didn't have, fa-. like, you know, they, they were, mismanaged for so much of their history it's actually a really great comp right and and dude there there are washington padres uniforms built built out because they're trying to move them out of there and they weren't even in san diego for like six seven years yet so look it's yeah what i hadn't even thought about that but yeah like that actually that's a really good comparison and i think that referencing the padres is relevant because if there's anything we've learned in recent years it's like all it takes is is the right owner to decide. Fuck it, I just want to win. I have I will a lot say, of money. I will I say. I will say. Petco Park helps. That place. Yeah, rules. but of course. yes, it's, it's, just, it's sure. There's there's some differences. Um, but the reason why I wanted to, to bring that up is because you mentioned Charlie Finley before, and I think that that was such an extreme case. And if you know anything, I mean, that's the talk about tip of the iceberg of the Charlie Finley story. But I think that that's also a fascinating comparison when we when we draw the through line to today because Charlie Finley was as publicly out there all the time for the entirety of his time in baseball and everything he was involved in. You always knew what Charlie Finley was about. He was talking to everyone. He was blah, 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 right? Currently, the A's have an owner who is the opposite of that. I know that he's not the only, John Fisher is not the only owner who kind of stays in the shadows, right? He's not the only one, but this is a pretty extreme degree to completely avoiding any sort of, not even accountability is maybe not the right word, but like just willingness to come out and be like, yes, I am in charge. I am the one obviously making all these decisions. And so that's why I feel like we have to turn the attention to him. And you certainly referenced him in your, in your column as well. And where, where his you know, place is in this story and what your read is on that situation. Well, there's also the dynamic here if he's just using Dave Caval as his attack dog and meat shield to an extent. Well, that's the job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's why when, when Manfred's talking about, oh, you can't blame John Fisher, white knighting John Fisher. It's his job. These are his bosses. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, they, we still talk about the commissioner of baseball like it's Kennesaw Mountain fucking Landis. It's not. Okay. That guy's job is to do the bidding of the 30 owners, of the lords. And so that's what he's been doing. And yeah. John Fisher, like I'll tell you what makes him despicable, is the total lack of accountability. Yeah. Okay, like, look, it used to be 
that owners were a little bit more front facing. Now, Charlie Finley was like a, an extreme example, but you know, it wasn't impossible to like hear from those people. John Fisher's just been in hiding this entire stewardship of the A's. And it's funny because Charlie Finley never lived in Oakland, by the way. Okay, that's the reason why he was at war with the fans. He didn't give a shit about the region. He never moved here. He went, he ran the team from Chicago. All right. That's why, you know, part of A's culture back then was you're trying to figure out who were Charlie's spies and reporting shit back to him on the phone to Chicago and who you could trust. All right. Like that was the game. Because he always wanted to know who's whining about making more salary. He wanted to get ahead of it, right? But he was never local. And so that disconnect and like that attendance in that time was part of that. That local ownership with this, with this stuff is massive. It's really, really important. And, and Charlie was never local. So now you get Fisher, who's, you know, blue blood San Francisco, right? Heir of the Gap family, right? So, by the way, so is Walter Haas, except, you know, he understood what institutions meant to the Bay Area, right? It's the reason why, you know, like UC Berkeley, for instance, like an institution in the Bay Area, like the Haas family was like, you know, huge benefactors for them. Again, understanding that institutions are important for a region. He saw the A's the same way, which is why he bought the club, invested in the club, and watched it thrive, right, at the end of his life. Anyway, John Fisher not only has made these massive decisions in which he obviously doesn't view the club the same way at all. Like, this is just a business to him. But he's done it in, in a way where, like, you know, it's Dave Cavall's out there. He is the shield. It's pretty much everybody else sort of doing you know, his bidding for him. I'm like, he's a guy in the shadows. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's, I think, indicative of his stewardship of the club, right? Absentee is a word. Like, there are people that have worked there for years, never see him around. You know, I know there was a story a few years ago written by Alex Coffey, used to work here, you know, a tremendous writer. You know, Alex like, starts this story, or there's like a meeting, and like, all these people are like, who's that? Mac? It's John Fisher. Like, these, these A's employees, like, who is that? So that, I mean, what does that tell you, right? And so, yeah, the way this is unfolded is just, you know, part of it is you've got this guy that, you know, calling all the shots, but, you know, he do, he obviously doesn't see this as steward, a steward of like something bigger than just a business. And I think that's, you know, while, you know, that's terrible, it's sort of par, it happens, that happens. I think the part that makes him exceptionally bad is that he doesn't seem to be very good at this. All right. Like he doesn't seem to be a very good deal maker. And by the way, the Vegas thing's not even solidified yet. It, every time they do something, it just looks like a ham handed attempt to like add more leverage. Right. Like it, that's what it, all, all of it smells of that. And like, and a clumsy effort at that. All right. So I don't know. Like not much of a business genius to me, except for, you know, being the son of the gap air or, or, or the gap founders. Like, right. So yeah. it's a good business. If you can make it work. What's that? Napo Babies? The... Yeah, of course. Yeah. Napo Baby is good business. You were right. It's great business. And you, you make a good point. Like when you compare him to say like Stu Sternberg in Tampa or even like Nutting in Pittsburgh, these other cheap owners, like those guys are making money, right? Those guys are making money. And to a certain extent, like they are starting, especially in Tampa, like they're running a legitimate franchise. There are stupid and goofy parts about those franchises, yes. But like Stu Sternberg is good at this, you know, as maybe mis, you know, misaligned his uh, perspective and his 
uh, attempts to remain keep the team in Tampa are like he is good at the job. Fisher is both a dope, cheap, and bad at the job. And it's hard to, if you're all three, you're going to end up with pie on your face. I mean, what's he doing well? Name selling it. clothes, do- selling clothes, well? Mark. Being born to the right people. Apparently, that's it. Like that, you know. Like, what what's he do well? But what I'm you know? what I'm most fascinated by is like. Then we have other owners who are out there now saying things that you're like, oh my God, why are you saying that? <laughs> and then I'm like, well, is that better? I, I have no idea. That's a larger conversation right. about the role of ownership and what is more insulting, what is more problematic, what is more you know, uh, counterproductive towards the growth of the sport and all these different things. But obviously there's one team that is involved in the current situation that the Oakland A's are in and it is them. So the Oakland A's. Jordan, like I think that isn't interesting. Like what are you supposed to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the right balance on the spectrum is between Mark Cuban, John Fisher. I don't know. I mean, you figure somewhere in between is probably the right answer. All right. Right. But I think the overarching point to that isn't necessarily where you fit on the spectrum. It's more the acknowledgement that what you own is more than just a business venture. Mm -hmm. That at some point you realize, like the Haas family did, this is a part of the Bay Area. All right. Like there used to be an ad campaign years ago. And it was like, this was was on the Bay Bridge. And people in the Bay Area will remember this. The sign just said, OKLND. And the tagline was, it wouldn't be the same without the A's. Okay? Like, in the Bay Area, like, same thing, wouldn't be the same without the A's, right? I think that is the part where, like, the cynicism of this just being a billion-dollar business versus the greater meaning to what these, these, these teams represent becomes such a conflict. Because, again, and I even said it in the column, on biz, paper, business, cynics, like, whatever, like, cold, straight-up, like, hey, they probably shouldn't have been here to begin with. Now, the fact is, they've been there for 50-plus years. And there are a lot of people like me who remember being at the ballpark on a Saturday afternoon with their friends, you know, getting on BART and walking across the, the lot and, and seeing the same faces, the people you got to know through the years, you know, getting out of the parking lot with the post-game show on, like laughing about what we just saw in the game or or. You know, 2000, like I was in the house when they won the West. Like, you know, there was like 50,000 people there. It was unbelievable. You know, I've also walked out of that place watching them flame out of the playoffs again. And I know what it sounds like to have 55, 60,000 sad people walking out at the same time. It's just a terrible feeling. And like, I'm not the only one. And, and so, yeah, like I think back to ownership, whether they're loud or not, whether they talk or not, I think what's more important than that is have you ever acknowledged at some point that what you're doing, owning this team, is that you're actually a steward for something bigger than you and bigger than just a black and white business? Because the pact that you make when you're an ownership group or your organization is you are selling something more than a business to the people. Like you're trying to convince the fan base that the franchise is more than something you buy at the store, that there's emotional heft and value to it, right? But that's a two-way street, and it seems as if that two-way street has not been upheld. Yeah, and and has it ever, though, right? Like, right. let me just flip it around. Like, has it yeah. ever been upheld? The A's have moved three times, 
All right. Well, so, yeah. you know, like that's an example. Like St. the St. Louis Browns used to be the number one team in St. Louis. They owned the ballpark. They were much more popular and had more success. That was also 70 years ago. Right. Like, so I mean, the, the athletics and Phillies, holy smokes, the Phillies didn't win anything. Like they won like a random pennant here and there, but hadn't even won a World Series until 1980. Meanwhile, the A's had two full blown dynasties in Philadelphia. Which team left? <laughs> okay. So, you know, like we, it's never been, you know, I think that's always been part of the myth selling. Yeah. Right. That like, you know, hey, we're a part of this, you're a part of this, whatever. And yet, like, right, like the Bronx and the Yankees, like, they're so intertwined. And yet, they weren't so intertwined that they weren't floating stadiums in New Jersey, right, in the 90s. So don't give me that, right? Like, that, that's always been a part of this grift. Right. Like the, those sell this like, you know, it's almost like, you know, not to get too cynical about it, but it's like, God, I can almost envision a time where and this is what all the commissioners want national sports. Right. Like where the city becomes so secondary. Right. Like at this point where the Raiders play almost doesn't matter. They happen to play in Vegas, this transient population, but like they're a national brand. They could play in Timbuktu. They would still get the same atmosphere the same following that the people that were la raiders fans that by the way never went away like you see more raiders stuff in la than you do chargers stuff easily right so like it's almost like i wonder if this is you know not to get too off track but like do we get to a point one day years and years from now where like that team wherever they're playing is just sort of like an ancillary thing because the brand of the raiders being a good example of this is just national anyway Right. That the provincial part of like sports dissipates a little bit and it's really just about the team. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Mark, you are uh, very good at what you do, even when you haven't written in several years. You, you, you sure fake it quite well. Thank uh, you. If, if you have not read, if you have not read Mark's piece of The Athletic from last week, we, we certainly encourage it. Um, but thank you so much for, uh, for, for, for joining us. And if you want to hear more of Mark, as, as Jake already plugged earlier, you can hear him on the round table, uh, on the athletic, uh, baseball podcast. If there's anything else you want to plug, uh, please go ahead. Read the site. We're doing good work at the athletic, right? I think it's a good, it's a good crew that, that, uh, covers baseball really well. So if you haven't yet, check it out, subscribe, you know, see, see what it's like, but I think there's a lot of good work on there. As a, as a competitor, technically, I pay for it. <laughs> hey, I read your stuff too. So, you know, <laughs> you, you go to the stuff that interests you. And like you guys are, you know, have for a long time now, despite all the shit I give you when I see you in person. Like you guys, like you have to understand if you're listening to this, these two guys are more graceful to me than they should be. Because I spent like probably three or four years making every terrible kid joke you could possibly imagine. You know, it's just terrible dad jokes about, oh, they're really young. And still, they were very nice to me. So, you know, we, like, we deserved it. It, well, it, it. it went both ways, right? You didn't have to be even <laughs> fake nice to us. So I appreciate, appreciate the, it. I appreciate the kind words, Grandpa. We will talk to you very soon. <laughs> Time to warm up my milk. See you, boys. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Our A's-focused episode rolls on with a very special guest. We are excited to be joined now by former Oakland A's all-star. It is Grant Balfour. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much, mate. Appreciate you having me on. 
So Grant, the reason why we wanted to have you on is, is as we've started to grapple with this with this news about Oakland, you know, a lot of clips going around over the past week just about A's fans, some of their favorite moments, you know, from the Coliseum and Oakland A's, you know, recent history. And you're, of course, a big part of that during that run from 11 to 13. Uh, but let's let's keep it very simply. When you saw the news um, that Oakland was in all likelihood moving to Las Vegas, what was your reaction? What, what did it made you think? Uh, man, it's, it's been going on for so long. All those talks, you know, I played for many organizations uh, that were in that same, I don't know, you want to call it conundrum or what it is, but um, this always looking to get a new stadium, whether it was with the Twins, whether it was with Tampa, whether it was with Oakland. And I just know those talks have been going on for so long. At some point, there's got to be a breaking point. And I guess I just wasn't surprised to see that, you know, at some point that they, they made the move or are going to make the move, it seems like. So... I think that that stadium and that fan base gets a bad rap for not the fans for not showing up and the stadium for being a little bit run down. When you get there in 11, the team is like, okay, they're fine. But mm-hmm. when you guys really start rolling in 12, what was that experience like as a player? Yeah. I mean, I, I love my time out there, honestly. Uh, I, you know, the, the weather's perfect. Um, it's great weather to pitch in. It's a great ballpark to pitch in as far as all the foul territory and, and all those types of things. Uh, we had a great team. I felt like we had a, a great mix of guys on the team, a lot of talent. And uh, we and when you're successful and playing good baseball, it, it's fun almost no matter where you're playing. You know what I mean? You could be winning on, uh, on a high school field. You're winning every night. You, you make it fun, you know? But uh, as far as the fans, I mean, they showed up. And uh, honestly, they – they made it an exciting place to pitch at. And, uh, you know, there's some nights, don't get me wrong, on a Monday, Tuesday night, it's hard to drag people out to the games. It's it, That's that's anywhere, you know, unless you're some of these bigger market clubs. But, uh, man, I, I remember weekends, and, uh, man, it was packed, and uh, it, it was awesome. It was a great atmosphere to pitch in. So, Especially because now, you know, there's a lot made of, of closer entrances, and I think – that yours was certainly one that it felt like the the fans in Oakland particularly uh, appreciated and and loved. And we've we have been to the Coliseum uh, just once, um, and it was a little bit after your your time there, just a couple years later. But it did, it does feel different because that stadium is is what it is for better or for worse. When the fans care and when the fans get into it, like it is a very different kind of atmosphere. And as someone as you just mentioned, you played at a few different major league stops. Was there something different about that home crowd? that you felt, especially, you know, when you're coming in to, to save a game in the ninth. Yeah. I mean, they, they took to me, I mean, the whole Balfour rage thing, I, you know, I came out Metallica one, uh, I wanted it loud. I wanted it the thump, you know, when I was coming out and they took to that and they, uh, they named the Bay Balfour rage. That was, that was one of the guys out there in, uh, in the outfield. And, yeah. And, uh, they just took to it, that group. And then the, the whole crowd and it just, uh, it just took off and, Honestly, it made it really exciting and it pumped me up and uh, brought the best out of me. So I can only, you know, applaud all the fans out there and and appreciate all the times that, uh, you know, I got to take the ball in those situations. So when you're a player and you're going into work every day at the Coliseum, like you know that your office is shittier than most of your friends' offices across the league. 
Like that's obvious. We've been in that clubhouse. We know what it looks like. It's worse. Like it is a worse physical place. How do players kind of approach that reality on a day in day out basis? So, yeah, I mean, I, I'd go in there and, and I was sitting in the hot tub that Rolly Fingers, I think, was sitting in. You know what I mean? Nothing really changed. So uh, you could go, you could look at it two ways and think, man, there's some history here. Some of these these greats uh, that came before me, I'm kind of, uh, you know, you're following in their footsteps in the history of Oakland. And then other times you would sort of look at it and think to yourself, man, we were just on the road in New York or wherever it was. And I was sitting in this plush locker and now i gotta go home and you know it's not so great i remember uh september call-ups before they minimized the amount that could come up you know we they'd wheel out these things in the middle of the room it, it would just be more confined uh it was it wasn't the best it's not the best place for, as far as clubhouses i remember one story in particular when uh one of the teams came in and i think it was seattle mariners and all the uh showers backed up with um yeah, urine and all the rest of it. So uh, the boys had to tiptoe around and go up to another clubhouse and, and shower and stuff. It was, it was some horror stories for sure. And like that is obviously completely not okay. And it's it and at times you know we can laugh about it and it becomes the butt of a lot of you know people's jokes for for other fans who say, oh well, yeah, that place sucks. Of course they're leaving. Whatever. That's not necessarily fair to the fan base, but you lived it, right? You experienced yeah. this on a regular basis. What I'm curious about is when you're winning especially, you know, in 12 and 13, I always got the sense, and I've, I've sort of heard other A's players talk about this, that it's like, yeah, this is our home and we're kicking your ass anyway. <laughs> Do yeah. you feel like you kind of had that attitude, especially during those years when you guys were, were really dominating? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it, like I said, it's, I don't know what it is. It's the, the field out there, the, you know, the grass going out there and the pregame and all that, you got beautiful sunshine, Every day, you know, you're on a nice ballpark, nice surface to me. Uh, I don't know about the infield is what they thought about all that stuff. But uh, to me, it, w- it was nice. I enjoyed it. Um, showing up to the ballpark every day. As far as the facilities, yeah, they're, they're underrated 100%. But um, at some point, it's like, yeah, this, this is what we got. It's not changing. So I'm going to sit here and complain about it. We're just going to go out, play ball, and, and win ball games and make it a fun place to be. And, and we yeah. did it reminds me of like a college sports environment. Like it's just this enormous cement block of <laughs> seats, right? Like there's no bells and whistles to it. It's like the, yeah. you know, the big house at the University of Michigan or like, you know, these huge cathedrals of just concrete that were built just to pack as many people into it they, as possible. They, they call it the Coliseum for a reason, I guess, huh? Exactly. Exactly. Really? So we can't let you go without asking about uh, one Yoannis Cespedes, who arrived, played his rookie season in your second year in Oakland in 2012. Uh, this is, of course, when he get, catches our attention as as our favorite player in the league. You got to be his teammate, so I'll just leave it open ended. But if you want to share any any memories or, or stories of, of playing with with rookie Yo, uh, please take it away because we will certainly appreciate it. Yeah, so I, I just remember being there in Oakland, 2011, and um, I think it was going into maybe it was 2012 was his first year, yep. possibly. This guy was built like a a wrestler, a, a a bodybuilder. He walked in and this guy was huge, right? I'm like, geez. And um, 
anyway, he's he goes out there hitting bombs. He comes back in, and one of his pre rituals, I think, he would get a full glass of milk, top it top it up, and then he would get. I don't know how many spoonfuls. I'd say about 20 sp- teaspoons of sugar and stir it into the milk. And he would drink it. He would just guzzle it straight down. I, I just I just couldn't believe the amount of sugar he was putting in there. And, before and the, the game? He would do this just, yeah, before games up, you know, just like in our pre-ritual stuff. And I just said to him one day, I said, why so much sugar? He's like... You just didn't see it was that bad of a thing. It wasn't that much sugar. It, it had to be 20. I mean, it was piled in there. I don't know how much sugar he was going through, but to have the body that he had and to be crushing that much sugar, it was, it was amazing. No coffee, just sugar and milk. No coffee. It was just milk. It was milk and then the sugar. And I'm talking like this, just holding it. I was like, he's got to be done soon. Not nah, just keep going. <laughs> Incredible. That he, is he, outstanding. He was a great teammate. Great. He was great with us out there i enjoyed playing with him i had a lot of fun well we certainly enjoyed watching him uh grant balfour uh this has been a pleasure thank you so much for joining us reminiscing on your time in oakland uh, i know the a's fans certainly appreciate it so uh yeah thank you for your time all right thanks very much guys and welcome back to the end of this episode of baseball barbacast this green and yellow episode of this show talking about what is going on with the Oakland A's and the potential end to the Athletics tenure in the East Bay. And Jordan, as we say goodbye, as we wrap things up, let's talk about where things go from here. Well, I think you uh, alluding to, all right, we're saying goodbye. This is it. Uh, They're not exactly moving to Las Vegas tomorrow. And I think one of the interesting elements of this from just a Literally, what is going to happen with these players, with this team? What that that is, I think, what I'm most fascinated by. Of course, the huge ramifications for the entire league and the franchise and all these fans. We just covered that, but in the immediate future, let's say this deal gets hammered out and we finalize. Okay, great, we're going to Vegas. Now what? We have a roster that looks like it could be one of the worst teams we've ever seen. Unfortunately, we know that, as Mark alluded to, like it sucks. It's not the players' fault. They're being set up to fail. And so now you have a situation where you have this like bizarre roster, the group of players who are playing for fans that both do not want to support the team, but also want to show their last support for the team. Do we know if they're going to be playing in Oakland, even in 2024? We've heard stories that maybe they're just going to move to Vegas and play in the minor league ballpark where they could fit just as many people as they're already getting now in Oakland and just do that now and and, and almost you know, rip the bandaid off even earlier than it would be before the new stadium is ready in Vegas. It's all ugly. It's all unfortunate. I hope that the A's fans have some sort of way to express the way that they're feeling, whether it is to show, you know, appreciation for the players, whether it is to show distaste for ownership and, and anything. And I, you know, it's it's probably going to get uglier before it gets better. And at the same time, I, I just hope that the A's fans can, can communicate and celebrate their franchise in whatever way that, that they choose fit. So the next date here that I think is notable is this Friday, Mm -hmm. April 28th, which is Oakland's first home game since this news was announced. It is no accident that the franchise, that the organization let this news slip right after a long homestand so they wouldn't have to reckon with this in per like with the fan base there. They are home on Friday now. 
and it'll be really interesting to see what the crowd is like, how the fans treat it. Is there booing? Who are they booing? Because this is a knowledgeable, smart, passionate fan base, and I'm very interested and creative fan base. I'm interested to see how they go about protesting and making their voices heard. Let's flip it to Nevada quickly and flip it to Las Vegas, because I think you mentioned something earlier that's really important. The A's don't have anything solidified in Nevada right now. All they have is a big plot of land and conversations with the local government. All they have in Oakland right now is a big plot of land and conversations with the local government. They have now gotten to equal footing with where they were in Oakland. Now, the difference is the intention and the ball seems to be rolling towards Vegas. And a lot of that is because I think the city government there and the state government is more passionate about like proving themselves as a big league city and bringing a major league team to Las Vegas. Whereas the Oakland local government is like, we're not going to give you the money that you want. We are prioritizing the lives of our residents and the other things that these people need. Um, where do you think that part of it goes from here? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the leverage the leverage is kind of bounced all over the place, it seems, in these negotiations. But while I understand the notion of equal footing and now we're kind of stuck in the same position, like the fact that their AAA ballpark, which is also brand new, is in Vegas and appears to be a, an option that they are publicly citing as something that they could do seems to be relevant in this discussion. And I think that because I, I, I just don't know what is what is tenable. How long can you stick around once you have declared your your extremely blatant intentions to leave and and you know in a, in a much more real way than just flirting with Las Vegas over the last six years? I have no idea. Maybe maybe it doesn't make a difference. Maybe the, the, it's there's they're going to have the same amount of people showing up and they're going to continue to be the worst team in the league for the next three years. And what's really the difference? And eventually, when the stadium's ready in 2027, they go. But I think there's a reason they're already suggesting the idea that they could start playing in Vegas. And I think that tells me a lot about how how urgently they are trying to move this along. But as you just mentioned, like now, you know, Nevada legislators are going to be able to kind of say, hey, you know what? We do want you here, but maybe for not quite as much as uh, we originally agreed to, because now we really uh, can kind of control the narrative here. So Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo has publicly stated that he is not going to raise taxes in order to fund the new stadium. That is how they paid for the Raiders stadium. I believe they implemented hotel taxes in Vegas in order to raise money for that. He has said that they're not going to do the same thing for the A's, which is notable. Now, there are a number of other ways to uh, get public money for a stadium. They, If they want to do it, they will make it happen. But there was this quote from Lombardo that kind of cracked me up where he said, Welcome, welcoming the A's to Vegas would be great news for Southern Nevada as well as our entire state. The prospect of bringing new jobs, more economic development, which, I mean, does it really do that? We Editors note, we're not probably, probably not. Uh, and an exceptional MLB team to Las Vegas is exciting on MLB levels, uh, is, is exciting on many levels. An exceptional MLB team to Las Vegas, an exceptional MLB team. My brother, have you seen Ken Waldachuk? Have you watched this starting rotation? Exceptional MLB team to Las I Vegas. I say, I actually think that, you know, if we're going to, you know, twist the definition of exceptional, they are maybe outstanding would be another way. They are different. They do They're stand, an exception. They do. And they are an exception in this league in the other direction. 
I think if he would rephrase uh, this, you might say like a great historic baseball brand, right? That that has a li- now again that's insulting to the people of Oakland because you're taking the team from them. But you know that would at least track a little bit better than referring to the worst team in the league as an exceptional MLB team. It's like my man watched Moneyball and no A's game since. It's like, bro, they've been really bad and really good many times since. So catch up, Joe. It's all good. It's all good. This is the other thing I'm interested in. Let's say they somehow are staying. But even if they do move to Vegas before they're moving into the new stadium, like I'm curious about the competitive window and if they are going to continue to try and be the worst team in the league. Or once they move to Vegas, they think, oh, God, if we want anybody to want to come see this new team, we have to at least start pushing in the right direction. Or if the plan is to be the worst team in baseball until they move into the new stadium. That is another part that I'm interested in. Do any A's on the current roster play in Las Vegas? It's another fun thing to keep an eye Mason on. Mason Miller. <laughs> Good one. Out of boy, Jordan. Mason uh, Miller, that, Mr. Ruiz. Those are my answers. With that, we'll say goodbye. Uh, this entire story bums me out because I think it is cool to care about stuff. It is cool to care about sports teams. And it feels good when your sports team pays you back with emotion and with purpose and with meaning and all of those things that we love to have in our lives. And we we blow past the facade of these being businesses. And we talked about this with Mark. And when the franchise does not make that a two-way street, does not reciprocate that energy, that passion, and that commitment and that connection, it's just a fucking bummer, man. It's just a big fucking bummer. And so our yeah. thoughts go to the A's fans who are staring at a future without a Major League Baseball team in their town. Uh, thank you to Mark Craig. Thank you to Grant Balfour. Thank you to Chris Tyler uh, for making this podcast possible. Thank you, Jake Mintz. We will be back on Friday talking about all the things like the Dodgers paternity list parade, Brian Reynolds extension, Cleveland's uh, pitching prospects are coming up. we got Tanner Bobby starting today. We'll save all that for Friday. Uh, we'll do good, bad, ugly, all that stuff. But hope you guys enjoyed this A-centric episode. And uh, we'll talk to you later this week. Serious XM Podcasts.